And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Football Show. Athletic Football Show is presented by State Farm, because like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Get a quote today. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. Today's Thursday, October 28th. I'm Robert Mays. Great show for you guys today. Mitchell Schwartz is going to be joining us a little bit later. We dug into all sorts of stuff. You are going to definitely want to stick around for that conversation. Before we get to that, though, I'm very excited to welcome my good friend, Lindsay Jones. Lindsay, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you, Robert? I'm wonderful. It is a great Thursday night game on the horizon. I look, we deserve this after making it through week seven. We deserve this. Listen, I do podcasts about the NFL for most of my life. This is how I spend most of my time. I'll admit when you get to week seven, week eight, it it feels like a grind, right? Like everybody feels that way. Like the NFL season hits this dip and you need something to kind of keep you going every once in a while. And this Thursday night game. That's exactly what this is. I'm very much looking forward to it. I'm going to settle in. feels like fall here now, too. It's like yeah. for just a lot of aspects where it's like, you know what? I'm excited about this. There's there, there's a cold wind in the air. Like, my leaves are changing. I'm going to settle in with, like, an autumn-scented candle in my basement, and I'm going to watch <laughs> this football game. Maybe some cozy socks. I Some apple cider. It's a huge part of my life is getting cozy in the fall. So I'm excited about this. We're going to talk about that game, but we're going to start the show by talking about some of the news from yesterday. The owners' meetings are going on. It's the first time the owners are meeting in person in almost two years, I think, yeah. looking at the timeline of it. Yeah, the on- last official owners' meetings in person was December of 2019. Yeah. Um, there were league events in February of 2020 at the Combine, but um, this is the last actual owners' meetings that has uh, been in person. So yeah, it's been a busy and 
not great couple of days if you're the league office. So why do you say that? What has jumped out to you about or what did jump out to you yesterday when you kind of watched the reporting and doing your own reporting that was happening over the last 24 hours or so? Yeah, it was weird. I had a little like FOMO about not being there. So our um, our business reporter, Dan Kaplan, lives in New York City. So he was representing the athletic at the owners meetings. But I had that like, I want to be hanging out in a hotel lobby. Wait, waiting out these owners. I got a little bit of that, you know, because that's that is a lot of what we do. It's not that glamorous. Uh, you know, we go to games, so we also hang out in hotel lobbies a lot. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's been a really rough couple of weeks for the NFL. I mean, it's been a lot of bad news, a lot of really unflattering stuff about what goes on behind the scenes of the NFL dating back to the release of um, or the leak of some of those emails that led to John Gruden resigning, some really bad look, a really bad look for Jeff Pash, the NFL's general counsel, um, and then kind of everything that's been going on with Deshaun Watson. So we haven't heard from Roger Goodell in a press conference setting in a really long time. I think actually his last pe- press conference was formal press conference was just a couple of days before the Super Bowl back in February. And the league was in a much different place then. They were, it was much more of like a celebratory. Or we, we did it. We got here. Yeah, we got here. And they were trying not to like, you know, celebrate crossing the finish line before they got there. But it was very much like a, we made it through this. Look how well we're working with the NFLPA kind of stuff. And, you know, we've heard from Roger Goodell on some conference calls since then, but he's largely been behind the scenes and he's been silent in the two weeks since the first Wall Street Journal story came out. So this was kind of a chance you know, the first chance for him to be on the record and be on camera getting asked about a lot of this stuff, specifically the investigation into the Washington football team, um, the lack of a, a written report about it, and um, kind of what actually was going on inside of Dan Snyder's organization. And then with Deshaun Watson, where we're, you know, we're recording this now on Wednesday afternoon, six days till the trade deadline, the big name out there is Deshaun Watson. And, you know, I just think that the Roger Goodell press conference, it happened late. It was something like 7.30 Eastern on Tuesday night. It was as bad of a press conference as I can remember Roger Goodell having, kind of dating back to the like the Ray Rice era where he just didn't have a lot of good answers. And the answers that he did give for things just really didn't pass the kind of critical thinking test where you know, his his answer to why was there not a written report issued from the Beth Wilkinson investigation into the Washington football team. And he said it was to protect the anonymity and that the the people who came forward and wanted, you know, wanted this investigation, they were the ones who requested it. Well, we know that that's not true, right? I mean, earlier that day, two former female employees of the Washington football team hand delivered a letter to owners at that hotel in New York City and said, we want answers and we want to talk to you and we want our stories told. I personally have spoken to women who worked for the Washington football team who were part of that investigation and who, um, if they had known there had been there was not going to be a written report, um, would have argued for one and pushed for one in the investigative process. And that didn't happen. So that one didn't really pass a lot of um, that one that one didn't really and the lawyers for the the people involved in that lawsuit also said that yeah. that's not true like our clients are not requesting anonymity and we're not told that this is how the process was going to go for sure yeah i mean and so this woman lisa banks uh, is an attorney who represents 40 um former employees majority of the them women um and look they there were more i think there were about 150 people that were interviewed in part as part of this process and roger goodell said most of the people who came forward and look we we kind of have somebody speaking for 40 of them um but it's just really hard to believe that that's it just doesn't hold water to me so it's it's a it, it felt like a really bad explanation and you know 
we've kind of talked all along since, you know, over the last couple of weeks about this. And it just is more and more apparent by the day that this is like a thing to protect ownership and to protect the highest levels of the league. And other owners are saying that they're satisfied. Jerry Jones was on the record today saying he's, quote, very satisfied with how the league handled the Washington football investigation. Woody Johnson, the owner of the Jets, you know, he declined comment when he went into the meetings by saying, we're just here to talk about football. Um, you know, Mark Davis, the owner of the Raiders, was the only first and probably only um, owner to say that he'd like to see some sort of results. And you can understand why, right? Yeah. Because he's really the only person whose organization has been punished. And it was collateral damage as, you know, kind of a catch and strays from that investigation. So I understand why Mark Davis wants to see what else is out there and why other teams have not been punished the way that his that his has. Is there any recourse here? Or is it just something that people are going to stomp and, and complain about until the whole thing goes away because enough well, time has passed? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that the two ways that you typically will get action, one is financially driven. And that's one of the the roads that these former employees, these women have are trying to pursue. They're trying to get financial pressure put on the league through sponsors. To this point, it hasn't worked. They've you know sent letters requesting that Pepsi and um, Nike and um, uh, Procter and Gamble, you know, some of the NFL's biggest sponsors also ask for more transparency about what's been going on. And then there's this congressional uh, inquiry that's going to happen. The uh, the Congress, the House Oversight Committee has requested a lot of um, a lot of documents um, and wanting to know a lot of things. And I think the NFL still has ten days to turn over what the what Congress has asked for. There'll be hearings. I can't imagine that the NFL is just going to say, okay, sure, here, here's all of this. They have lobbyists. They have lawyers. Um, Roger Goodell was asked about it yesterday. He said they would respond appropriately. I mean, yesterday, appropriate or appropriately was the Roger Goodell drinking game. And uh, it was, it would, you would have been hammered and definitely needed an Uber home. So, you know, I, so I think those are the two avenues. I mean, if anything is going to come out, it's going to come out because Congress forces them to, or and eventually there's enough financial pressure on them. Roger Goodell and the other owners, you know, 30, 30 NFL owners are not all, this, all of a sudden going to say, okay, you're right. That's just, they're dug in on that. It's going to be some sort of external factor if anything's going to happen or another, a whistleblower. Another topic that Roger Goodell hit on yesterday and didn't seem to have a lot of answers on is what would happen with Deshaun Watson and what sort of clarity we would get. It seems like his stance on this is that they cannot get in, they don't have the necessary information or necessary evidence in order to put him on the commissioner's exemplist, which means we will not have any clarity about what his future would look like if a trade were to happen. You know, the Texans have been putting him on more or less a paid leave this season and without him being suspended, without him on any sort of list like that. That may not happen with another team that trades for him because it doesn't have to because the league isn't going to take any action. One of the things he said yesterday is that they can't take action because of the lack of evidence. Is that true? Is that just another example of them trying to find a way to get out of this when in actuality they could do something if they wanted to? Yeah, I think they could do something. Um, I wrote a column back, I published on September 1st, and where I brought up all of these points about the investigation that they're doing, why, you know, what the commissioner's exemplus is, the history of it, um, how it is used, how it's been applied, the precedent involved. All of it holds up today. So I was really proud of that. That's something that I wrote two <laughs> months ago. 
literally all of it still stands. It's hard to do stand, in this day and age. And I, and I stand by every word that I wrote two months ago in that in that case. You can go back. It's on. I, I retweeted it earlier on Wednesday, so you can find it if you want to read it again. But um, to answer your question, it, it's kind of true. So the way that the policy, the personal conduct policy, and specifically about the commissioner's exemplist is written, it it, it was meant to be narrow, narrowly tailored. So it's, it says if you if a person is or a player is charged with a felony involving domestic violence, sexual assault, child abuse, or violent cl- crimes with weapons, they could be placed on the commissioner's exempt list um, while the criminal proceedings take their course. Um, or if the commissioner or the NFL, you know, his staff have reason to believe that a violation of the personal conduct policy has occurred. That second part is fairly vague. Yeah, it's it's very nebulous. So they have used that part, that second part, to put Kareem Hunt on the commissioner's exemplist. Remember when that video came out that showed, you know, Kareem Hunt kind of kicking at a woman in a hotel hallway? Um, He put him on the commissioner's exemplist immediately after that video was released. There was never a criminal investigation. There was never civil charges, um, lawsuit, nothing happened. But there was a video that was released. So they put him on that list. Um, I believe Josh Brown, the former kicker from the New York Giants, was placed on that list. Um, also, no charges, no investigation, but there was um, a leaking of some evidence. I believe it was text messages or photographs. Um, so they had some sort of visual proof. None of that stuff has come out in the Deshaun Watson case, right? There's no video. There's no um, you know, photographs, those type of things that would lead to that kind of immediate public backlash. So there is not precedent to put somebody who has civil allegations, which at this point, that's what they are. They're civil allegations, 22 of them, 22 different lawsuits. There's also at least 10 women who have gone to um, Houston police, but those are, it's an active investigation at this point. No charges have been filed. Um, So there's just a lot of gray area. Um, There's no precedent for this, but as I've kind of said many, many times, this is a completely unprecedented situation and trying to apply precedent to something that you that, that's this complex that's really tricky and you're exactly right in what the Texans have done so far we're seven weeks into the season um Deshaun Watson has been inactive every week but he is getting his full paycheck so he is in essence on a paid suspension which is what the commissioner's exemplist is doing but let's say a team decides that they they have done their due diligence. I'm using air quotes here because I'm very skeptical that there is any NFL team or league official that is um, qualified and able to actually do their due diligence into everything that's going on here. If the law enforcement hasn't even been able to come close to figuring it out yet, um, we could have a very long discussion whether um, the justice system is actually equipped to adequately handle these sorts of situations. Um, But let's say a team... The Miami Dolphins, for example, because they're the team that seems to be the ones that are actually in this, um, decides to trade for him. They're not going to put him on a paid suspension on their own. They're not going to give up three first round picks so that he can not come to the building and just continue playing to a tug of Iowa. That's not going to happen. So that's where Roger Goodell would need to step in and give some sort of clarity to this situation. Doesn't seem like that's coming. Goodell seems um, very clear that until there is some sort of resolution to the civil or to the criminal case, whether that's um, he's cleared by a grand jury or indicted by a grand jury, that he's not going to make a decision one way or another. There's no way that is happening by Tuesday, that there's going to be some sort of resolution 
to all of this. Um, nor Which does there seem to be because of the news that we'd heard that Miami and the Texans apparently have a deal in place. Which has been reported by who? The Chronicle. I believe it was the Houston Chronicle. Right. Um, kind of the framework of a deal where, if all of these conditions are met, the civil cases are settled, and Roger Goodell um, gives some sort of clarity, then we would proceed forward with a trade. All of that just seems really unlikely. That twenty-two civil lawsuits are going to get going to get settled within the next six days, and a grand jury would make their decision whether or not they're going to charge him. Because Roger Goodell's decision is not coming from the, is not going to stem from the civil allegations. His decision is going to come based on what the criminal investigation. So there's just so much more that is going on right now, which is why it just blows my mind and makes me especially frustrated that we're still talking about like trade compensation and, you know, where would Deshaun Watson want to play? And is he going to waive his no trade clause to go to Miami versus Carolina? And what's going to happen? It just makes my head explode. It's just another example of why the league not acting on this just makes it harder for everyone involved. I mean, it just makes it so much more complicated because we have no clarity on what comes next if he does get traded. Well, we will revisit this, I'm sure, after the trade deadline passes and as this continues to kind of evolve um, over the next however many weeks, however many months. We're going to move on, though. We're going to get to just our Let's normal- Let's get to the fun stuff. Yeah, our normal look at a, a coming week in the NFL. So we're going to talk about who has the most at stake on the field in week eight. So, Lindsay, why don't you start us off? All right. Well, this kind of follows exactly what we were talking- a little bit what we were talking before with Deshaun Watson because I think Sam, I think Sam Darnold- and Joe Brady have the most at stake this week. So one of the items of news coming out of the owners we- owners meetings this week is that the Carolina Panthers are not going to pursue a Deshaun Watson trade. Um, right now, David Tepper says they're not going to get involved right now. That is a significant change from several days ago when Joe Person, our Carolina Panthers beat writer, was the first to report that the Panthers would indeed look into trading for Deshaun Watson um, before the trade deadline. This is because Sam Darnold has proved himself to be Sam Darnold. It was like they ripped the mask off of him Scooby-Doo style and trying to figure <laughs> out who's under there. And, oh, too bad. It's still Sam Darnold. Um, so, you know, he's been really bad. He got benched last week in the loss to the Giants. He's had eight turnovers during the Panthers' four-game losing streak, seven interceptions, one lost fumble. He's back to being kind of the same guy that he was with the Jets, um, the guy who is making bad decisions, who is taking too many sacks, and who is committing far too many turnovers to keep his team um, competitive. And you know he's going to be starting again this week. They're putting him back in against the Falcons. It's not going to be the PJ Walker show yet, um, although maybe it maybe it should be. But he is under a ton of pressure now because his career is kind of at at stake right now because the Panthers have realized that they have a quarterback problem to the point that they would even consider trading for Deshaun Watson, given everything else that's going on. And now Joe Brady, his career is kind of at a crossroads. I mean, three or four weeks ago, he was back in that conversation as, you know, potential future Chicago Bears head coach, this young, (laughs) hot offensive coordinator, genius play caller. Look what he's done to salvage Sam Sam Darnold's career, you know, after the first three weeks of the season. And now he's getting a ton of questions about, you know, his competency. Matt Rule is getting asked. Are you going to change play caller? Um, so there's just a lot of bad stuff that's going on right now. And, you know, a lot of times it gets linked to how bad their offense has been since Christian McCaffrey has gone out. But if your success as an offense is that tied to one player and that player is a running back, I think that's a really bad situation to be in. And both Darnold and Joe Brady 
they just need to be better. And, you know, they have some protection issues they have to figure out. I think they've given up 18 sacks over the last four weeks. I mean, that's, you cannot be successful in that type of situation. Um, but this is, this is just a huge week for them and playing the Falcons, one of these teams, um, you know, the Falcons are not a good team, but they're a team that the Panthers, if they are who they were in the first three weeks, they should be beating the Falcons. And I think there's a really good chance that they could lose this game. I would argue that Joe Brady has more at stake than Sam Darnold. Yeah. I think the Sam Darnold thing, even if he gets a little bit better than he's been over the last few, few weeks, we probably know what Sam Darnold is going forward here. Joe Brady was supposed to be one of the next guys. And like you mentioned, it was only a few weeks ago where we were talking about him in those terms. And now there are real questions about what this offense looks like with how the offense is structured. I think their offensive line is was a problem from the beginning. I was concerned about the way they built that thing. And it is now rearing its ugly head. I know they're missing some guys, but the losing Cam Irving shouldn't be what torpedoes you here. I don't, and they weren't, he wasn't playing well when he was in the lineup. So I'm with you. I think that it's a huge week for them. I think it's a huge rest of the season for where those kind of where those guys both go from here. I'm going with the Patriots. And I don't think it's because they have the most at stake this week. I think that you could argue they have the most to prove this week. They smoke the Jets twice, but they have a sizable negative point differential against pretty much every other team. But they've kept it close against the Bucs. They kept it close against the Cowboys. And I think this game against the Chargers on Sunday is a good measuring stick for where they fall in the AFC. Because if we've talked about this. It is muddy in there. It is a jumbled mess in those AFC standings right now. If the Patriots win and they're sitting there at three and four, they're not far off from potentially being a wildcard team in the AFC. They're kind of in the mix there. So I'm just wondering, do we go from, uh, you know, Mac Jones has had some pretty decent moments. You know, like this is a team that can give some people some problems, but ultimately is probably going to fall short to, is this a team that can make the wild card in Mac Jones's rookie year? Because I do think they're getting better on offense. They've opened things up. They're pushing the ball down the field more. So that's kind of, to me, what I want to watch is, where are the Patriots and how do they stack up to the rest of these teams? Because I do think with the right breaks, they absolutely could emerge as that seven team in the AFC. And I don't know if I would have thought that a month ago. And I do. And, you know, the, the flip side of that game, too, is I just want to see where the charges are at. You know, yeah. they got smoked the, by the Ravens before their bye week. I want to see what Brandon Staley has been cooking up um, over the last, you know, I guess over the last two weeks during their bye week. Um but yeah, it just feels like the Patriots are kind of like the best of the teams with losing records, like the team yeah. that is closest to pulling it together because some of these other teams, they feel like they're on a downward trajectory. And I'm, you know, speak, speaking specifically of, you know, teams like the Broncos. I think the Colts, you know, could be one of the teams that could sneak yep. back up in there that, you know, is, you know, they, they had some really bad losses early, but but yeah, I mean, the Patriots just feel like they're going to hang around there. Like, I would not put them anywhere close to that next tier of teams. I believe what you in our power rankings that published earlier on Wednesday, I think I had them right in the middle. And I think they came out right, kind of right in that like 15 to 18 kind of range, which feels right. But somebody's going to have to make the playoffs in the AFC, right? I mean, somebody's going to have to make these win these wildcard spots. Well, I think with the Patriots, it would be, do we believe the chart or the Raiders? Do we believe the Raiders are going to keep doing this or are the Raiders going to fall off? Are the Chargers still a year away? What happens with the Browns? Like those are the teams yeah. I think that are going to be in the mix for those wild card spots. And I do think the Patriots still, they have an uphill climb to the get Chiefs. there. The Chiefs. Yeah. And the Chiefs. I mean, it's so I, 
I, I mean, I'm not ruling out the Chiefs winning the division still. I'm, I'm just not. Like, I think their offense is good enough where if they get the right couple breaks, that could happen. But I think those are the teams that are all bunched up in there right now. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, let's get to our appointment viewing. It's the game and the stuff that we cannot wait to watch this week. We're just turning this into a Thursday night football preview because we have a good Thursday night football game. And I don't even have to sell you on it. No, don't even have to do it. Even with all these guys out, you might maybe we should make you sell us on it. I can probably come up with a drinking game. We have I can think of something. We have an undefeated Cardinals team playing against the Packers. What are you looking for in this game? Well, I want to know who's going to catch passes, first of that, all. That's for the a big Packers. question. That's, that's the big one. Feels like it could be a big Robert Tanyan kind of night. Big big Bob Rob. What do we call him? Uh, but yeah, it feels like, because look, so the news, right? The news heading into Thursday Night Football is that the Packers have some pretty significant COVID issues right now. Devontae Adams um, is on the COVID-19 list. Um, he is not as of... 5.45 Eastern time on Wednesday afternoon. He has not been ruled out, but he also did not travel with the team to Arizona. There was still kind of a really slim chance that if he had two negative tests, including a negative test on Thursday, he would be able to travel independently and play. But I would take him out of your fantasy football lineup, as long as I'm I would, I would very very much doubt that that is possible that he would be able to play. And they're also going to be without Alan Lazard, who is on the COVID-19 list as a close contact. And when we heard all summer and all training camp, coaches saying vaccination is a competitive issue, this is what they meant. Because Alan Lazard does not have COVID. He is on the COVID-19 list because he is a high-risk close contact. He's required to be out for five days. That includes a Thursday night game. So he is unable to play. So now the Packers go into this game that a game that could very much end up determining playoff seating in the NFC. And if an NFC championship game is in Arizona or Green Bay, like think of how different an NFC championship game in Arizona versus Green Bay could be. They're having to go play this game without their top two pass catchers. Um, they're losing a lot. They have combined for 67 catches, 928 yards, and five receiving touchdowns. All of the other Packers combined this season have 89 catches, 850 yards, and 10 touchdowns. So they they do get scoring from some of these other guys, but they are losing um, their most consistent receiving targets. So that's, that's the number one thing that I'm looking for is how does Aaron Rodgers um, adjust? How does Matt LaFleur adjust? And who steps up in those guys' absence? So beyond just losing Devontae Adams, this is a team that still doesn't have David Bakhtiari, still no Jair Alexander, Z- Darius Smith is out. And they're 
thin. <laughs> they have a lot of guys who are going to be missing this game. So I think it's a tough road for the Packers. But I absolutely think they can still win this game. To me, the biggest question just on the field is going to be how does their run game look against a Cardinals team that you can run on? You know, the Cardinals defense has been very good because it's been very aggressive. They make a lot of tackles for loss. They make a lot of splash plays on defense. But you can still gash them in the run game, especially without J.J. Watt playing. He's going to miss this game with a shoulder injury, which came out today. Adam Schefter reported that. That's a huge blow for Arizona because he's been one of their only good run defenders. So now you have an Arizona, or excuse me, you have a, a Packers team that is really good at hunting out and creating explosive run plays. And that's what they're going to have to lean on. You know, when you don't have those two guys in the lineup, when you, even just of Devontae, I mean, that, he is such a huge piece. I think he's probably more important to the Packers passing game than any other receiver is to their respective team in the NFL. So now, how do you build and shape your offense? And I think it's going to be, all right, if we're in this formation, we use this motion, we know we can get this angle on this run because of how Arizona run blitzes on this down because of where these guys are going to be. I think using the, the Cardinals aggressiveness against them in the run game is the way that the Packers can move the ball and score offensively. I think that is absolutely what they have to lean into. What do you think the over-under should be on Aaron's, Aaron Jones catches or total touches? Oh, total touches at least 20. It's going to be real high. Yeah, I think it's going to be at least 20. I think it would be a big A.J. Dillon game in terms of him running the ball. I think we're going to see a lot of both of those guys, but I wouldn't be surprised if Aaron Jones was a receiver. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw more two-back sets than we've seen from them this year compared to last year. Remember that game a couple years ago when – I think it was three years ago now, maybe two years ago, when they played Kansas City on – it was a night game, and Aaron Jones had that monster day as a receiver where he's running Was that the game that Matt Moore had to play? It was. It was the Matt Moore game, Yes. So I, I do think that they'll have some creative solutions here because they can use both of those guys at the same time if they need to. And I think the run game will be a huge part of what they're doing. It probably should have been anyway, even with Devontae playing in this game because of the way that Arizona is built. So we'll see what happens. You know, If they can get those gashes on the ground and still be able to move the ball because I do think the Cardinals offense is going to be able to do some things against what is admittedly a shorthanded Green Bay defense. Yeah. So what are you what are you looking to see? What are you excited to see out of the Arizona de- Arizona offense and Kyler Murray on a national stage? I mean, just we've seen so much just command from him this year, no matter what teams have tried to do to him, like his ability to make big plays against the Blitz, his ability to attack every area of the field. I mean, the ways he can play in structure, out of structure. I, mean, I think it's just a showcase game for him. And this is just the type of game where if it's a monster performance in front of a national audience, what sort of ground does he make up again in the MVP race? Because he's right there. I mean, this is the chance to show everybody watching this week. They're like, all right, I, I legitimately am one of the best players in the league right now. I'm going to be so disappointed if this game doesn't come down to like a who has the ball last Aaron Rodgers versus Kyler Murray type of type of game. Think about how many fascinating, thrilling games Aaron Rodgers has played against the Cardinals. In that stadium I mean, yes, in Arizona. I mean, just so many moments. I remember I was in Denver during the Hail Mary game. Yeah, because that was that, the night before. Yeah, this was the night before. And that that was I remember watching from my hotel room in Denver that game where it was just a crazy game. And I hopefully we'll get one of those again. You know, Aaron Rodgers has given us plenty of oh, – and, and on Thursday nights. The Thursday night Hail Mary against the Lions that one year. Like 
if we can get another one of those, I will be very happy because after the way that the Thursday night games have gone, uh, we deserve something like that tomorrow or tonight, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I don't know with the lack of firepower that the Packers are coming to this game with just from a receiver standpoint. I don't know if it's going to be like a 35 to 38 kind of game, but I just I just hope that it's a back and forth. I hope, um, and especially after the primetime games last week where it was like a Geno Smith two-minute drill, like give me Aaron Rodgers, give me Kyler Murray, give me some like really exciting late game, late game action, and I will blow my daughter's bedtime to stay up so we can, uh, so we can watch that. I can't wait for like three Equiminius St. Brown touchdowns during this game. All right. I think I have him on a benchable in my fantasy teams. I might need to see if I can activate him. Hey, it's worth it. All right. <laughs> We're going to ask our one big question about week eight before we get out of here. Lindsay, why don't you kick us off? All right. So the other, my other kind of favorite game of the week that I'm looking forward to watching is Saints Bucks. And I just want to know if the Saints are going to be able to kind of hang with the Bucks in the NFC South. And it's kind of interesting to me how quickly this is flipped you know the obviously we know that the way that the postseason went last year the bucks beat the saints on their way to the super bowl um but the saints swept them last year that was the big reason that they ended up being the wild card and now these teams are in two totally different situations i think the saints are absolutely one of those wild card potential teams and this is their first matchup against the bucks this season so i just really want to see um what they're going to look like against obviously a really good Bucks team if Jameis Winston is going to be able to kind of do enough offensively to keep up with Tom Brady because they're scoring at a ridiculous rate right now. Um Jameis Winston against the Buck Jameis Winston against the Bucks is never not going to be interesting to me. Yeah. So I just that's the game that I'm kind of uh I'm gonna highlight I guess Sunday afternoon. I'll probably put it on its own its own television while I have the the game mix on the other ones. Um so yeah, I just want to see kind of where they are at. I just think this is a really this is a much bigger measuring stick game for who the Saints are right now, where they're at. They're getting healthier. Um, they're getting David Anyamata back after his six game suspension. So their defense is going to look a lot better. Marcus Davenport was back in the lineup, um, although he played some he played a little bit of a more limited role last week against Seattle. I just think this is a much we're going to learn a lot more about who the Saints are and what their trajectory is this week than we did last Monday night when it was a disgusting rainstorm against a really bad Seattle team. Yeah, they could have lost that game. I mean, a couple different bounces of the ball, they could have lost to that If Geno Smith could just run a two-minute drill. (laughs) Like, this is three games in a row where they have had the ball with two minutes left with a chance to tie or win the game, and he is just, like, completely melted down. And I don't want to put that all in him. I mean, I think Seattle's in in a really bad spot, but, like, Come on. Well, Russ like, is taking all the two-minute drill oh, reps in practice right now, God. even though he's on IR. <laughs> That's probably true. I am excited to see what the Saints defense looks like against the Bucks. I'm sure we'll dig into that more with Nate tomorrow. I have not talked to him about it, but I will make him talk about it because the Saints defense is playing really well. And they have guys on that side of the ball that are playing incredibly well. Demario Davis, Marshawn Lattimore's had a really good season. So I think that group, and they're only getting healthier. Like you mentioned, Anyamata coming back, Marcus Davenport coming back. I mean, that's the type of unit that I think could carry them as they kind of find their footing a little bit offensively. Just a quick note, while we were recording this, the Saints traded for Mark Ingram. I don't know how much that's going to matter. <laughs> I think the more Alvin Kamara's on the field, the better for them, but just something to take note of. Uh, yeah, another kind of red a, zone weapon. Yeah. Guess, potentially I'm, short yardage kind of guy. And um, he's probably more like a locker room guy. He's going back to New Orleans where he was, you know, beloved. And I think a lot of his friends are still there. So I like that from like a fit a fit standpoint, but yeah, I don't know if it's going to change that much. 
So my big question, kind of a similar. Oh, can I say vein. one more one more quick thing about of course um, about that game? Um, I also would like if Fox is listening. I would like one camera isolated on Mike Evans and Marshawn Lattimore at all. Oh times. yes, I forgot about that. Yes, oh my god. So the best the part of every single one of are going to get worn out, unfortunately. But it's been. Give, a, give me that. Marshawn Lattimore's had an eventful week or so with the DK Metcalf stuff, and now he's playing against yeah. Mike Evans. It's going to be a lot happening in a short amount of time. All right, my my question is sort of similar. I want to know what the Vikings look like against Dallas. You know, as we're figuring out what those final last couple of playoff spots in the NFC might look like. Minnesota has been an interesting team. Their Kirk Cousins has played extremely well this year. Their offense has been a very efficient throwing the ball. Now, Dalvin Cook said today, told reporters, he needed the bye week. He, he needed that time to get his ankle right. Their running game has not been very good, especially when you compare it to what it's looked like over the last couple of years. If they can get a little bit more efficient running the ball, combined with the way that they've passed the ball this year, and then you throw in what has been a very good defense. I mean, they have been a really good pass defense this season, and they've been obviously healthier than last year. Patrick Peterson is hurt right now. He's on IR. Other than that, they're pretty much healthy. So what they can do against a Dallas team we all think is a contender, and whether or not they're going to be one of those teams in the mix in NFC playoff hunt, that's my biggest question. What are these Vikings? And I do think that we're going to have a really good window into that in a nationally televised game against a very good Cowboys team. Yeah, I'm excited to see this too. And I know Nate will be betting on this game. I actually can't wait to see <laughs> what what his pick is going to be um, and what he's going to bet because I'm sure he's he's going to. Because, um, yeah, they're, they've been interesting. I, you know, I think they're, you know, we kind of talked about how there's this like jumble of um, AFC teams that are going to get into wild card consideration. I think the Vikings are very much in that realm in the NFC. And I mean, I flip side too is I'm just excited to watch the Cowboys. I've been every time the Cowboys are on, I'm excited. I missed them last week. I mean, that was part, I think, the problem last week with the slate was that the Cowboys weren't on, the Chargers were on by, even the Vikings. It's true. Some of these just the good, some of the good, more interesting, exciting teams um, were all off at the same time. So th- this is a good game. This is a good palate cleanser after um, last week's debacle. All right. That's all we got. Then, Lindsay, thank you very much. Looking forward to week eight. Like you mentioned, it's a little bit of a better slate than what we got last week. So hopefully the games are a little bit closer. The games are a little bit more exciting. Well, it's fun to do two podcasts with you. Yeah, this week. two podcasts week. If you missed our mailbag, make sure you go and check that out. And, uh, you know, skip just the part where we talk about our families because that part was really fun. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys. Thank you very much. Let's get to Mitch. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. For their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash maze, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash maze now to grow your business, no matter which stage you're in. Shopify.com slash maze. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. All right, it's time now for our weekly segment with the one and only former Chiefs offensive tackle, Mitchell Schwartz. Mitch, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing well. We have not talked about this at all. I wanted to ask you because I had a very good barbecuing experience on Friday, and I wanted to ask you what is the best thing you've cooked recently? Because we have not got into it at all on the show, and I feel like this is the time of year. Like It's fall. You're probably out there. You're brazing stuff. What have you been cooking up recently that I should know about? I made a rack of ribs this weekend. That's probably my Ooh. best one yet. Uh, it was awesome. I hate to say it, but I only did the first two hours on the smoker. After that, I just transitioned to the oven because, you know, for the most part, like it takes on smoke and then you, I mean, I do the three, two, one method. So I wrap it in foil and after it's wrapped in foil, I mean, it's not going to take on any smoke in the foil yeah. in the last five to 15 minutes. It's more just like kind of setting the glaze or setting whatever mm-hmm. after. So it's like, I kind of just realized why do I even bother like leaving the grill on and wasting pellets and running outside when it's cold and rainy and stuff. I might as well just smoke it for two or three hours, transition to the oven. And that's the way I did it. And it turned out awesome. Uh, I also, after I wrapped it, I like reduced the juices that were left in the foil. And then I added barbecue sauce, a little bit of honey to that. And that was like the best glaze I've ever done. So definitely a method I'm going to continue moving uh, forward That sounds with. amazing. You, the way that you made me ribs the first time is the way that I continue to make them. Just like tons of butter and honey, just like pressed into the foil is like what I do with it. Yes. I made a a brisket on Friday and it was the first time where I've had a ton of time. So I got it on Thursday and we weren't making it until Friday night. And so I put it on on, at midnight on Thursday night. I was like, all right, I'm just going to let it go. Like, I'm going to try to see if I can get it all the way there without wrapping it so I can keep the bark on it really good. And I did. So it was on there for 20 hours and it was the best one that I've made because it's hard to get it through the last temperature thing without wrapping it in foil, but then you lose the bark on it. So I just tried to keep it on as long as I could. And it was amazing. We had like an impromptu engagement party on Friday and I made a 17 pound brisket for everybody that came. It was a very wonderful night. So did you, did you let it rest or did you just kind of take it off and it was ready to go? I let it rest. I let it rest for like 45 minutes after it was done. Okay. So that's why the timing of it worked out well. Yeah. So that's why people do butcher paper because it's kind of the in-between between foil and not wrapping it. So people like to wrap it in the butcher's paper. It's obviously a little bit more breathable than foil being, you know, paper and, and porous and malleable. So it allows people to kind of trap some of the steam, get some of the moisture in there and keep it tender, but also, you know, completely lose a bark like you will with foil. So I tried that a couple times. I tend to find that it's difficult to tell when it's done when it's wrapped. I have, you know, difficulty kind of gauging exactly when it's all perfectly tender. So I'm someone who kind of like pokes and prods it and puts yeah, the thermometer yeah, yeah. in everywhere. And so you're doing that with butcher paper. It just makes it a bit more difficult. So brisket's kind of my white whale. It's something I've always wanted to do and make perfect. And I feel like I haven't made like a perfect brisket yet. I think I'm getting better. And that's all we can ask for, right? Progress is the only thing that you're hoping for. 
All right. Speaking of barbecue, let's talk about Kansas City and the Chiefs because things are not going well. And we haven't really delved into this with you because the Chiefs panic that we kind of hovered over with Nate Taylor last week, you weren't, we didn't have you on the show. So now that they lose this Titans game, because I think they're, my thought about this, Nate thinks this has been the kind of prevailing wisdom on the show over the last couple weeks is they'll be okay. Like, especially on offense, they'll be okay. They'll figure it out. They'll have a get right game and then we won't worry about this stuff. After the Titans game, I feel a little bit differently. I think it's hard not to. So did your opinion of them and your feelings about where they're at shift at all after watching them on Sunday? Yeah, I think exactly like you said, you know, we kind of held out, oh, it's the Chiefs. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, they'll have their one or two good games. You know, we kind of thought that the second half of the Washington game, you know, the defense turned it on. The offense looked great. You know, turnovers, they were scoring. And then the Tennessee game happened, and it just kind of confirmed that, you know, all the things that we saw the first few weeks were, you know, maybe as bad as we thought they were. We were trying to kind of gloss it over and say, oh, it's the Chiefs. They'll figure it out. It's Mahomes. It's Coach Reed. It's Tyreek. It's Kelsey. I think at this point, they've kind of used up all the uh, benefit of doubt. And, you know, at this point, it's just like, all right, they have to go prove that they're a better team than we think they are. And that, you know, three and four and leading the league in turnovers and 32nd in defense isn't truly who they are. And I don't think anyone's going to say, oh, they'll figure it out or, oh, you know, just give it a few weeks. It seems like, you know, I'm not going to say things are quote unquote broken, but it seems like things are further past, you know, being easy to repair or being a drive or two or a half away from uh, fixing. And it's definitely, you know, new territory, especially in the, in the Mahomes era. And I know on the ground here in Kansas City, the fans are not <laughs> taking it well, even though they've had like 40 years of misery to, you know, understand just how lucky they are that, you know, three and four and still having the best quarterback is a pretty good place to be, all things considered. It's just uh, a little bit different than the uh, standard that's been set the past few years. The defense is a lost cause. Like, that, that's not getting fixed. I think that those are issues that are going to be longstanding for the entire year. I'm wondering when you watch the offense, what would you diagnose as the most important issue that they're dealing with right now? Honestly, it seems like a lack of trust and it kind of ties back to the defense. Like it's an offense that just seems like they know that they have to score every drive and they're pressing to do it and they're trying to make a play. You know, obviously we, we've seen Mahomes do that a couple of times where it's, you know, third and long or whatever and he's getting sacked and he kind of just chucks one up knowing that, you know, it might be an awful play. It might be a good play, but I'm guessing in the back of his mind, it's like, all right, well, we're going to punt in and give up seven anyway. So I might as well just see if we can extend the drive or make something crazy happen. Um, but I think that is kind of just pervasive in the whole offense. I mean, these are all pretty much the same guys. It's not like they've been fumble prone before. It's not like they've dropped a lot of passes and those have led to interceptions. It's not like, you know, Mahomes has been a guy who's made all these bad errors in his career. So it's it's a lot of the similar players who are doing things that are abnormal for what they typically do, which to me makes me think it's a little bit more, you know, mindset related or trying to do too much or not having kind of the laser focus you know, in the sense of the two high defenses that they're seeing, it forces you to be way more patient and to run yeah. the ball more efficiently and to be okay taking the three-yard throw or the check down or maybe the third read, the guy sitting over the ball. And it's a different style of play. You know, you're used to five play drives for 80 plus yards and the quick strike and the, the long plays. And, you know, if you're Tyreek and you're used to having three balls a game that you catch, you know, 20 plus yards downfield and now all of a sudden every single one of those is covered, like you get frustrated and yeah, maybe the one slant that you're going to catch, you all of a sudden like start turning a field because you want to make this big play. 
And that little moment of, you know, turning up field is the reason you don't snag it. And that turns into a pick and a pick six. And then it gets snowballing because now at this point, every single turnover, it's just like, oh, man, here it goes again. You got to make sure it doesn't happen. So well, every lost possession is life or death at this point because you need to score every single time you have the ball. Yeah. And they're I mean, they're averaging less possessions than they ever had combination of the defense not getting off the field. And again, teams forcing them to do this kind of dink and dunk. You know, we're going to make you go down the field and run 12 plays and Conversely, that takes half a quarter. So I think they're at like nine and a half possessions a game. The rest of the NFL is at 11. So now they have less possessions to make up those 31 points than, you know, other teams would. I'm sure you guys saw a boatload of two high defenses when you were there. This isn't a new idea that you have to make them beat you all the way down the field. What would you feel comfortable sharing just about what the kind of dialogue was when you knew you were playing against a team like that? What did you feel like you guys had to do and what did you feel like you could go to? when teams were going with that method wow we were pretty happy to see it because uh you know it just means there's a lot of space in there and a lot of um you know things you can do if you ever play two man it was just like all right great pat's gonna run for first down you know for people that you know are listening that don't know what that is if you have two deep safeties you know five guys in man coverage underneath you know there's no one to really chase the quarterback down no one's looking at him no one's accounting for him he it's a defense you would like never run against Lamar or Kyler or these other guys who are mobile because it just exposes it and the quarterback has everywhere to run so two man was just like off the table because Pat can make you pay with his legs you know these kind of looser zone coverages um you know we always tended to attack pretty well you know it was for a while no one really knew what to do against us and so they were just running different defenses than they really ever had and so we'd go into every week and expect all right, well, you're going against the Patriots and it's a cover one team. And now all of a sudden they're running a bunch of, you know, cover four and softer zone stuff. And it's like, all right, well, that's different. And then you go, well, Gus Bradley still ran the same thing every play. But, you know, you go against (laughs) these teams and now it's a cover three team. And now they're mixing in a little bit more man, a little bit more blitz, maybe a couple more too high looks. So teams will start to do stuff to basically try to confuse you or to make it different than what you prepared for. But the big trend was, especially after the 2018 AFC championship game against New England, it was, you know, play press man, try to jam guys at the line, try to get home with four or five, doing all these stunts, you know, trying to pick the offensive lineman and um, make Pat uncomfortable and trying to get a void. And the idea being that, you know, realistically, if you have to hold up a man coverage, you're going to get torched against the Chiefs. But what man coverage and press man coverage allows you is maybe half a second more where the receivers are fighting through that before he's open. And now all of a sudden, you know, based on the games or based on the offensive linemen uh, not doing their job, you know, you get to the quarterback just before the guy would come open in man coverage. And that that was the trend that seemed to work a little bit. Um, you know, like anything else, we figured out, you know, pretty quickly how to deal with that. And typically, again, if it, if it was a zone team and they're running a bunch of, you know, man coverage, you know, coach can diagnose that pretty quick. And, you know, we've always got a lot of man beaters in there. So this trend is just different. It's going to force them to be disciplined in taking those shots. It's going to put an emphasis on the run game. You know, the O-line is getting crushed this week because it's been their worst game and it's kind of, you know, the worst game of the season for the team. The O-line has been, you know, pretty good on the whole, especially the interior. And everyone's talked about Trey Smith and the physicality and, you know, Creed Humphrey is the highest rated center on PFF and, you know, Tooney's playing well. But it wasn't necessarily a run game that just took over and, you know, could run a game and okay we're going to hand off 33 times for 180 yards it wasn't a run game that you know forced a defense into dropping one of those safeties down into the box and saying okay well we absolutely need to stop the run we can't do it they're going to win running 40 plus times 
So let's drop a guy down and then boom, now you can throw the ball. So the run game has to take a bigger precedent and the passing game just has to be disciplined enough to take those shorter intermediate throws and just trust that we're going to walk down the field and we're going to put up 12 plays every drive and every drive scoring a touchdown. And they've done that when they held onto the ball the first six games. You know, this game <laughs> is the aberration offensively. I was looking at some of the numbers and they're pretty stark. So teams rushing four and playing too high behind it. So either two man, cover two, cover four, cover six. Mahomes has faced that on 157 dropbacks this year, which is about half of his dropbacks. It's 49 more times than any other quarterback in the league. Yeah. He's had the most dropbacks, but it's not like he's above everyone else by a few. 49 more. He's at 157. There's only one other guy above 100. That's how much of an outlier it is with the way that teams are playing against him. And it's just, you've seen it. Like He's 12th in EPA per play on those snaps when teams bring four and play too high. It's not bad, but it's not earth-shattering the way that we've expected from them and what they need to be considering how poorly their defense is playing. Right. And if, again, if you take out this past week, which is admittedly their worst game, but if you look at the first six weeks and all kind of the metrics, they were number one or number two in the NFL in, you know, drives per or plays per drive, points per possession, points per game, you know, kind of all the things that you want to see, they were number one in. The thing they were also number one in that you don't want to see is turnovers. So the first six weeks, it was very much like, okay, if we somehow can eliminate half a turnover a game, you know, let alone a full turnover or two, but if we can just eliminate, you know, half a turnover to one turnover per game, we're going to be scoring 38 a game and we're by far the best, you know, offense in the league. And potentially now you're talking about historic numbers. Um, So this game, I think, is throwing people off the scent a little bit from what the advanced stuff was saying, you know, before. Uh, it was just that that bad of a game and against you know another good AFC team if you go and look at the schedule all of a sudden it looks not so good when your two wins are filling in Washington you know congratulations that wasn't too bad and then you know you play the Cleveland in week one week ones are always weird and Cleveland dominated that game for three and a half quarters anyway so you don't really have a great win in there and then you've got four losses against you know the Chargers the Ravens the Titans, the Bills, and it's just like, all right, so we've seen nothing to say that you're, you know, in the upper half of the AFC, uh, let alone the best team that everyone expected to be. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. So I want to talk about how this could relate to just an overarching conversation. You guys had a lot of success there, but you've had mixed success at various stops in your NFL career. When things aren't going well in a building, when a team is struggling, how does the building and the feeling at work change? How do you see it tangibly shift? Well, it gets a lot tenser, that's for sure. You know, there's, it's not quite as fun to go into meetings. It's, you know, most coaches, you know, you go into the meeting room, you get there a few minutes early because you're responsible and you start chatting with your buddies and you're hanging out and, um, you know, the coach walks in and maybe the meeting starts at 10 and, you know, he kind of lets you guys talk, you know, he brings up a story, you guys kind of start BSing and it's 10.03, 10.05. It's like, all right, guys, let's start meeting. 
you know, that's not happening this week. There's uh, you know, no, no laughing, no discussions, no, you know, off ball tangents. Um, everyone's in there. You're kind of got your notepad ready. You know, you're definitely uh, showing the coach that you're taking notes and, you know, you're doing all those little things. You know, he walks in, the meeting starts right away. It's all football. You know, there's a, a much higher, you know, emphasis on execution of practice. You know, coaches are okay with things going awry at practice if you're working on something you know if you're an offensive tackle and you know i'm working on my jump set and i get beat on it once or twice that practice you know obviously they're not going to be super excited about it but they're going to say mitch what's going on and say you know i'm really trying to work on this jump set i know it's important for me and the offense like i just want to get it down i'm trying to get a feel for it like i'm going to tighten my footwork up and i got it like okay you know or hey you know we want a guy to make sure he's targeting his right hand and you know a couple times the defensive tackle swipes that hand and you know you get beat and the coach can see it he's watching you he knows that's a point of emphasis and he says okay it's okay you know mitch is working on his outside hand and you know he's really just trying to get a feel for it well this week that that doesn't matter you know you have to execute (laughs) uh that play better look good it better look the way it should you know you're going against the scout team so you should be winning most of those plays especially in the run periods where you know i'm sure they're preaching physicality and relying on the run game and the o-line needs to be the you know driving force of the team so you know you've got eight plays of nine on seven you better have eight really successful runs you know a nice big hole a nice cut by the running back you know just you feel like you do have to be a little bit more perfect and you you have to make the block correctly you know there's a little bit higher intensity there's a little bit more focus you know it sucks to say that but that just is human nature and that is the case um you know there's less kind of playing around and walkthroughs or joking around you know guys aren't throwing balls back and forth and you know i think you know guys aren't you know trying crazy things you know tends to be if a guy you know pat throws the ball to travis and he pitches it to to tyreek and he throws it across the field to d rob and he throws it back to pringle and eventually it makes its way back to the equipment manager you know maybe this week that's not the case the guy catches it you know runs back to the huddle gives it to the equipment manager so things are definitely more buttoned up you can tell the energy of the coaches is, is a lot more stressful. You know, you mentioned the various other places I've been in is one place with three different coaches who all got fired. So uh, you can tell in those situations that, you know, a coach, obviously Coach Reed isn't getting fired anytime soon. So the coaches have, I think, a good sense of security. You know, maybe not the assistant coaches as much and maybe not on a particular side of the ball right now. But you know, coaches start to kind of fear for their job security. They know that, you know, what the win-loss record is, is uh, what determines how, you know, far they make it in the league and whether they stay employed. So they start freaking out because now all of a sudden, you know, they feel like a player who's not playing well, who feels like he's about to cut, you know, they feel like they're about to get cut. So they get really amped up and tense and stressed. And, you know, now they're kind of putting all their nervous energy on you. And you're just like, hey, man, like, this isn't the right way to go about it. Like, this isn't going to help me. I don't need your nervous energy. I'm already stressed the F out anyway. So it just kind of snowballs and um, it's not the greatest feeling. You know, that's one of the best things with the Chiefs and going, you know, 12 and 4, 14 and 1 is, you know, I could have a bad game and we could still win. You know, I didn't have bad games in victories in Cleveland. Uh, I had good games and losses in which you still feel like you sucked and, and you lost. Um, so you're just, there's not that wiggle room. There's not that margin of error. Things aren't quite as fun. And, you know, winning covers up a lot of things. And when you aren't winning, you know, all those kind of bad things come out. Can you remember a coach in some capacity that was good in those moments? 
that you particularly remember like, oh, this he's a calming force or he's a good problem solver, somebody that was just really strong when things needed fixing? So this one, maybe because I was a rookie and this is just what I remember, but Brad Childress was our offensive coordinator in 2012. We started out like 0-6, I think it was, and you know we had a rookie, Brandon Whedon, starting, and that was the year we drafted Trent Richardson and me and Travis Benjamin, and um, we were 0-6, you know, we weren't playing well, and I very vividly remember in one of the offensive meetings, like the Saturday night before the game, uh, we didn't really do like the first 15 or any of the other stuff. We just watched this video on this like Chinese sprouting plant that you know, you plant it and it takes like two years to grow. And like two years later, it's That's what Nick Sirianni was saying today. Is Did he use that? Yeah, he was talking about a plant and he was talking about like how you need to fertilize the plant. Yeah. So, well, this specific plant, you know, it takes like two years, it grows an inch. And then like overnight, it's like three feet tall. And obviously I'm exaggerating. I don't know the exact numbers, but I remember the gist of, of the message, which is like, guys, we're like this plant right now. You know, we're being watered, you know, we're slowly growing, slowly growing, but like the second we figure it out, like we're going to shoot up, we're going to accelerate. You know, we've got a lot of talent. Uh, we just need to figure it out. And, you know, I remember liking that. Um, you know, I think that Pat Shermer was the head coach. He obviously has a reputation for uh, not being the most energetic and not, uh, you know, being he's, I guess, the opposite of a Sirianni. Um, so that kind of energy, that calming energy, I think is good when you're losing to, you know, have a coach who's a little bit more. Uh, laid back he's not going to panic he's not going to you know put his nervous energy on you um so i do Keep remember that. how do you notice that how does that manifest like is it in meetings it can in, in front of the room like in quieter interactions like how does that nervous energy transfer well typically the head coach has more meetings and longer meetings you know that's one of the hallmarks of coach reed is he doesn't really have too many team meetings and if he does have them they're like 30 seconds unless there's like something that seriously needs to be addressed but all of a sudden, you know, if you're a coach and you're not doing well, you feel like you need to talk to the team. You need to, you know, speak to them and your words are going to be the, the thing that gets into their brain and gets them to play better. And so, you know, you start talking to them more. You start having these meetings and you talk about accountability and doing things the right way. And we need to practice better. And these are our goals for the day. And um, so you can definitely tell in their tone and their energy, the, like, like, hey, guys, we need to play better. We need to do this. We need to do that. This is how we're going to do it. Um, you just you don't really want to ever sit in a team meeting. They're boring. And especially when you're sucking and losing, you're like, dude, I know I'm the one out there that's getting beat. <laughs> like, trust me, I get it. Um, you, know, you can tell your position coach, like I said, I mean, the, the meetings aren't quite as loose and fun. Uh, they tend to keep things um, a little bit more buttoned up. And then, you know, maybe to get back to the previous analogy, you know, maybe those one or two plays that you get beat in a normal week, it's like, okay, you know, this was what happened with your technique, you know, we'll address that, you know, you got to get better feed, better hand placement, you know, you got it. Now all of a sudden it's like, hey, you can't get beat, this is a bad rep, like we need to do, do better, this isn't the standard. And so all of a sudden like a play that you might be just say, hey, you know, there's work to do better, but it's a physical thing, you know, don't worry about it. Now it's all of a sudden like, this isn't good enough. We need to do better. Now you start feeling like crap. Um, so those are typically the ways it manifests. It just, you can, I mean, you can read people, you can sense um, a little more tenseness, you know, for people that have pets, a big thing and, you know, training your animal and especially dogs is whatever kind of your energy level is the dog takes that on. So if you're super hyper and animated, the dog becomes hyper and animated. And if you're stressed out and tense, the dog becomes stressed and tense. It, it follows, you know, the leader. And in this case, the coaches are the leaders. So 
if the coaches are being stressed and tense and uh, the players feel that and see that, it creeps into them. Um, so it definitely, you know, manifests in those ways. And then it all gets back to what can I do on the field to be my best? And if you're worried about screwing up, if you're worried about what the coach is going to say, if you're worried, you know, he's a little bit on edge, he's going to yell at me. Now that indecision makes you screw up and then he yells at you and then you feel worse. And then again, it snowballs, you know, that's not a good thing. So those are kind of the ways that it manifests and it just leads to an overall less fun environment. You know, people aren't having as good of a time. Everything's nitpicked. Everything's criticized. Uh, it's just not the way really anybody wants to be, you know, governed. Before we move on, I want to ask you in regard to the Sirianni thing and the plants. This kind of analogy world, the, the metaphor world, the imagery that some coaches use in these moments, does that play to players? Like, Does that resonate with guys? I, I'm sure they think it does, and that's why they go to that stuff often in moments where they feel like they need to turn something around or tense moments like the ones the Eagles are probably facing right now. I'm wondering if guys just roll their eyes or if that actually does work in those moments and it does get across. So it all comes down to sincerity. You know, it seems like with Sirianni, that's just who he is. Like, I don't get yeah. the sense that he's putting on a show and he's trying to say these things. Um, you know, there's a coach that is a little bit uh, close to that area in the, in the same division who has similar press conferences, but it seems a little bit more coach speaky and I got to be tough and I got to say these things. Uh, you know, with Sirianni, it just seems like it kind of bleeds out of him. This is the way he talks. This is how he addresses his players. And so I think if you're a player and you sense that the coach is doing their best, he's not, you know, BSing you. This is truly what he's about, what he feels. Um, it tends to play a lot better. Uh, you know, if you kind of think that your coach is just grasping and, you know, read a leadership manual and watched a couple, you know, TED Talks and all of a sudden he's, you know, doing things that he hasn't done the whole time. I mean, Sirianni's kind of always been this way. So it very much is who he is. You know, Pete Carroll in Seattle is it's competition Wednesday and it's, you know, the same tropes over and over, but that's who he is. That's his belief system. It's very genuine. He's not trying to, you know, force something on the players that he doesn't believe himself. And I think players definitely buy into sincerity and, you know, outward confidence that isn't hokey and it's not something that they're trying to, uh, you know, kind of pull out of thin air. And, you know, typically the best, you know, leaders and coaches, they get to that spot because they've shown that ability and, you know, they understand how to relate to people and, you know, there is the argument that, you know, maybe if you're not that kind of guy that switching up the messaging could work. Um, I think you have to be pretty good at, at kind of threading that needle. So this leads me into our next topic here, because I wanted to talk about what makes a good head coach, especially in 2021. A few different things have brought me to this. The Raiders are 2-0 and since John Gruden resigned. Josh Jacobs came out after the first game that they played and talked about how not having Gruden on the sideline just lowered the anxiety level for people. It was just calmer. And so I'm just wondering, what do you think removing somebody from that equation could do for a team? And what do you think makes a good head coach? Like what qualities do we find in the best guys? Because the way that we look for that position right now, we know how it goes, right? Typically, the best coordinators get head coaching jobs, but those jobs are different. And it's though your talent as a coordinator and a play caller doesn't necessarily translate to a head job. So I'm just wondering how you see that job in that position and what makes a good one. Yeah, well, the Gruden and Jacobs thing kind of ties directly into what we were just saying that, you know, a coach who's overly stressed and overly panicked and, you know, as a yeller and screamer, that doesn't seem to play quite as well in, you know, the current generation. 
Um, you know, players don't want to be screamed at. You don't want to get, you know, your butt chewed out. You don't want a guy, you know, putting you on blast in the media. Uh, you know, I talked about Pete Carroll just a little bit ago. I think he was kind of the first of the new age of just pure positive energy. You know, he's not going to, um, you know, really put out anything negative. He's not even going to do it inside the building. You know, everything is positive reinforcement and guys do thrive to that. I mean, or thrive with that. It, it feels good to be praised and to, you know, have uh, someone telling tell you you're doing a good job. You know, there's a lot of players and a lot of coaches who feel like, man, my coach hates me. Like, he never tells me I do a good job. And, you know, as an older guy, you can tell Like normal coach, people. <laughs> yeah, but you can tell, you know, some coaches don't have that gene, that ability. You know, some parents don't have the ability to say, hey, son, I'm yeah. proud of you. You know, I love you. You're doing a good job. And so, you know, as an older player, you're seeing that. You're like, hey, man, coach likes you. He thinks you're doing well. Like, he's not riding you, but he's being particular because he – sees a lot in you and he wants you to do well and so he's you know he's not treating you like an asshole but he's you know a little more firm with you because he sees this potential and he wants you to get there and that's that's kind of where guys are at these days if you know a coach is a yeller and screamer and you know he's putting out all that negative energy again that bleeds into players you you know if you're jacobs you don't want to fumble come to the sideline and just get cussed out for two minutes like you already feel like shit you let your team down you know it no one wants to fumble no one wants to let their team down and so just not having that around and, and understanding that hey i made a bad play i come to the sidelines everyone's cool everyone's like hey man we trust you go get them next time you know that was uh i think it was you know kareem hunt's first game in in new england you know he came to the sideline it was like his first fumble in his career i don't think he fumbled at toledo and you know no one was freaking out at him no one was cussing him out it was just like dude we trust you you're here for a reason like it'll be all right and then he goes and like sets the record for yards from scrimmage for against the patriots of all teams and so that positive reinforcement definitely is you know what works in in this day and age and you know get back to the other question what makes a good coach it's understanding you know how to lead um you know it does seem like kind of their offensive or defensive acumen is at the forefront of why guys get jobs you know, there are those special guys who get pulled from the, the ranks. You know, Coach Reed's origin story he goes straight from, you know, quarterback coach to head coach. There's probably more guys like that than we realize because I think teams get so locked into needing the certain, you know, the McVeigh, the Shanahan, the, you know, young OC. And, you know, maybe Staley's going to change that and, and push a few guys towards the defense. But the reason people like Staley is because he communicates, he explains it well, he seems genuinely curious and interested in, you know, all things football and human psyche, and that translates to his guys. You know, he, you can tell that he tries to understand his players. He puts himself in in their uh, state of mind and their headspace, and you know, he relates to them well. He understands what they need, what they don't. You know, the best coaches are very specific in what the goals are what they expect accomplished and they lay that out for you you know typically in cleveland you know we had a lot of new coaches and a lot of team meetings like i said guys don't really love that like okay we get it we need to be accountable to each other like we get it we have to play better um just kind of state them let guys go do their own thing i mean people don't want to be babied you don't want to have a coach that's constantly repeating the same stuff so you know here's what we're going to do this is how we're going to do it you guys go out and make that happen you know if it doesn't happen Obviously, it's the reality of the NFL. We'll replace you with guys who can make it happen or guys who, you know, follow the kind of core tenants that we're after. Um, but, yeah, I think in this day and age, that's what makes a good coach is clear expectations, clear goals, uh, consistent messaging, you know, an understanding of the players, what they're going through and, you know, being a bit more positive than negative. And 
um, the best position coaches specifically understand what each guy needs. You know, maybe the left tackle needs to be cussed out, and that's what motivates him. And the right guard, you know, if you cuss him out, he shuts down and goes into a shell. And he's the guy that you have to talk to and just be like, hey, man, it's okay. Just keep going at it. Um, so position coaches, you know, the best position coaches understand what each individual guy needs, and they can coach and they can motivate in different ways. How would you interact with Andy on a weekly basis? Like, in what capacities did you see him over the course of a of a week preparing for a game? Yeah, like not super often in terms of like a one on one interaction. You know, you obviously even with the team. Like, what, like how how many times, how many meetings a day was he in with you? Like. Would you guys meet as an offense every day? Did he lead those meetings? I'm just wondering like how much of a finger he had on everything that you guys did there. Yeah, well, offensively, I and the O-line tend to see him less because he was in charge of kind of the bulk of the pass install where we would leave. You know, but, you know, typical Wednesday, you show up, you have a quick team meeting, um, offense and defense break up, you know, he stays in the room, but you do run game, you do screens. You know, so he would do the screens and then the pass game, we would stay for the screens, we'd leave, he'd stay there for the next hour and a half doing pass game and we'd go back and do all our protections and our run stuff. Um, so yeah, you definitely, you know, see him, he's kind of the central voice, um, he's the one doing the install, but for the defensive guys, you know, they see him eight minutes total in terms of like team meeting time because you got, you know, a meeting maybe Wednesday I mean, during the season, you're you're going to meet pretty much every day with the full team just to kind of give a quick blast and, hey, this is what we got going on today. And, um, you know, again, the 30-second meetings, it doesn't have to be, you know, 10, 15 minutes every time, but you're going to see the guy. But the longest he probably talks consistently is, you know, a Tuesday, which is, you know, when the Chiefs are on after a game, you know, he kind of resets what happened from the previous week. And then a Saturday night before the game where he kind of gives us, you know, a couple minutes of, you know, motivational speech. But other than that, throughout the week, if you're you know not an offensive guy, you're not really seeing or hearing from him more than you know 30 seconds to a minute at a time, and it's very quick and concise. And again, he has very clear you know goals, expectations. He tells them to you, you know, this week it's going to be these are the things I need to see from you guys in practice. This is how we get better. This is how we improve. And you know, simple as that. Let's go do it. If you were choosing, but it's interesting to hear you say that he's the central voice on the offense. Like he has a ton of, he shapes that in a way that other head coaches might not, which I think is telling. But I'm wondering if you were, if, it, if an organization came to you, let's say it's the Raiders, right? They're going to hire a new head coach this offseason possibly. And they wanted advice from a player about what they should look for in a head coach. Do you think that you would lean more toward a tactician or someone who could be a culture setter just on a general level? Culture settings going awesome in Jacksonville these days. Um, <laughs> well, you'd have to find the right guy to do that, right? I mean, that's, so that's the thing because yeah. I just it, again, it's the difference between being a really good coordinator and what makes a really good head coach. So I'm just these are things that I struggle with and wrestle with, and I'm curious about. Yeah, I mean, there's the pros and cons to both. Obviously, you know, I think that was lost in the Jim Harbaugh stuff. Is I think people mistook him for being this like offensive genius, and he was the one that kind of drove the offense. I think especially with time now, we realize, you know, it was Roman and some other guys who were really the offensive input. Harbaugh was the culture guy. He was the one who set the tone, the physicality, the competitiveness. Um, but then you've got Roman and he leaves and now you don't have that, you know, OC who can blend your, you know, um, individuality and your physicality with, you know, what needs to be done in, you know, current day football and scheme wise and now it doesn't work anymore. So at this point, I'd 
still maybe lean a touch more towards the tactician because, you know, we see this all the time that if you've got kind of the CEO head coach, you know, there's one cycle of OC and DC that can come through. You can be successful. You can, you know, win it all. Those guys obviously get hired right after, you know, maybe there's a second guy waiting that you can groom who's also pretty successful. But, you know, that's part of what's happened with Belichick is, you know, all of his coaches have been hired over the last 20 years and eventually you just run out of brilliant guys to surround yourself with. And now, you know, your kids are running the defense and, um, you know, you pay McDaniels probably head coach money to stay there because you realize how important he is to the offense. And, you know, it's more difficult, I think, to have sustained success with a guy who's just a culture builder. I think there's these windows, you know, a three to five year window where he comes in, he flips it around, the team buys in, you know, he's got his assistant coaches who kind of grow into that role with him and they're successful. And then all of a sudden you're making deep, you know, playoff runs in your conference or going to the Super Bowl or winning the Super Bowl. Those tacticians get poached and, you know, now culture can only take you so far. So I'd still, you know, slightly lean, you know, tactician. I think obviously the very best have a combination of the two and they're able to do both. But, you know, the reason coach reed for instance has always been so good is because he is the driving force of the offense and so you're never losing that football mind you know for you know a defensive guy like a staley like you're never losing that defensive mind um you know tomlin and harbaugh i'm sure you know are a little bit more hands-off and they're more you know culture guys but i'm I'm sure that you know tomlin has his hand in a lot of you know defensive stuff as well and you know it kind of takes on you know his personality as it progresses yeah that Tomlin is the example I was thinking about, and it almost feels like in order to sustain some semblance of offensive success in those specific situations, you need the quarterback to shape the offense, right? Like in Pittsburgh, Ben was the offensive coordinator <laughs> like over the last 10 years. Like That's what it was, and it, it's easier to shift between offensive coordinators when that guy's going to control everything. And in Baltimore, Lamar's the offense. Like it, it, They've shaped it around him so much that he drives a huge part of it, so it's easier to bounce between those guys or to not have one central voice and central figure choreographing the offense when the quarterback is the central figure. I, I, I tend to agree with you. And it's it's good to hear you say that because I've always thought I want a play calling head coach at the top of this that is the voice, that is the like figurehead of how this works. So that's how always how I felt about it. And hearing you say that makes me feel a little bit better about that stance. Well, I so. guess to your point, you know, if you have a defensive guy maybe he's more tactician or you have a culture guy it seems like offensively to make that work for more than a three to five year run you need a stable quarterback who is going to be there and whatever happens oc wise he can elevate a bad oc or he can just kind of become the offense uh so would you say that's kind of the case that if you want say a 10 to 15 year run from a culture slash defensive guy that you need you know a top five to top eight quarterback to really balance it out on offense Yes, and I think that's what the Patriots were, and I think that that's what the Chargers are going to try to be, right? Like, that is the huge selling point of that job for Brandon Staley and for that partnership is that you can have Herbert for the next decade. And even if you have to cycle between some offensive coordinators, if it goes well, hopefully you can still keep the train going because that guy is going to be really good. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And, you know, I feel like Staley's maybe one of the first ones to be a true, like, innovator defensively. Like, I feel like a lot of these guys who become defensive head coaches get the job and they were good defensive coaches and they've got a good scheme and all those things. And then 
you know, all of a sudden that kind of dies out or, you know, the league figures out cover three or uh, these other things. And they weren't necessarily innovators. They were just doing something everyone else does at a much higher level. But it does seem like, you know, Staley's going to be able to mold that defense and change with the times maybe a little bit better than, you know, your typical defensive coordinator turn head coach would. I also think, and this might be colored by a couple specific examples, I think that there are older defensive-minded head coaches who don't want as big a hand in the other stuff. And even if they have more input on it, it's typically not good input. Right. Like I think Vic Fangio just wants to be a defensive coach. Like that's what I had he a wants feeling that's who you were talking about. <laughs> and but I think Zimmer is the same way. I don't think Zimmer is constantly up at night thinking about how to gain edges on play calling and the structure of the offense and fourth down. I think he's thinking about blitz packages. So I don't know how long it's sustainable with Brandon Staley, but I do think that he's thinking about every single aspect of this, how to shape the offense, all of that stuff. So that to me is the other thing is that I think his purview is a little bit different, and he wants it to be a little bit different compared to some um, some of the other defensive-minded head coaches we've seen come along in the last five to ten years. Yeah, that's definitely fair to say, and it get back it gets back to like overall intelligence level and capacity. You know, you need a guy who's extremely bright and who can do those two different roles: be you know the CEO and worry about all the other high-level stuff, and still maintain what he does you know on his side of the ball. And so you know you've seen you know, defensive offensive coordinators who become head coaches because of that thing, they all of a sudden give up that role and go into the CEO role. And like, that's not what they got hired for. And now all of a sudden, like they're doing the worst of the two things that they do. And it, it becomes a big detriment. You know, I think that was one of the things McVeigh, you know, did a good job of early on is, you know, keeping Wade Phillips around because he understood, you know, I need someone who's been in this role who understands what I need to do every day as a head coach you know, I don't know how much he actually leaned on that or whether that was just, you know, a bit of a media narrative, but it does help to have, you know, a guy who's been in the role who you can go and say, you know, hey, Wade, you know, we're four and three. We just lost two in a row. You know, would you change anything up this week? Should we just stick with what we're doing? You know, you've been in the spot or, you know, hey, Wade, we're going to face this team this week. Uh, you know, in the past, you, you know, getting back to the fourth down stuff like, you know, is this a team that you know, we're going to feel good about going for it. And can we put your guys in these situations and, you know, having guys with that experience, uh, I think definitely would help, you know, a new head coach and someone who's a little bit less inclined to, you know, be that kind of overall CEO, uh, worrying about all the high level decisions. All right. Well, we solved NFL coaching. So if anybody needs to look for somebody or is looking to hire anybody, they can call us when we get to the hiring cycle here in January. Would you, are you, are you more of an OC or a DC at this point? Offense, I think that 100%. I think that we've seen it. The way to sustain success year to year in the NFL is with good offense. Every no, I'm saying year. you personally, if I hire Robert Mays, am I getting an offensive coordinator or a defensive coordinator? Oh, God, you're fucked no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm not, I'm well, not we sure solved head coaching, but apparently not with you. So <laughs> No, definitely not with me. All right. That's all we got. Always appreciate it, buddy. Fantastic talking to you. We will be back next week. I got to figure out which day, but it will be next week. We're, we're still playing with the schedule here a little bit. It sounds good. I look forward to it. All right, guys. That's all we got. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Lindsay. Thank you to Mitch. Always great to chat with both of them. We will be back tomorrow with Nate and Shield doing our Friday 5 preview and our week 8 picks. Until then, please rate and review the podcast on Apple or wherever you listen. I would sincerely appreciate if you did that. Also, please subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash football show. You can check out all of the indispensable 
football writing that our staff does there, please go get a subscription if you do not have one. We'll be back tomorrow. Until then, appreciate you guys listening. Talk to you soon. This was The Athletic Football Show.